If you will, please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 7. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your full attention. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon from the prison those who sit in darkness thus far God's holy word you may be seated and let us ask the Lord's blessing upon his word We pray, O Christ, who is the incarnate word, to speak to us now by your inscripturated and preached word. May it be a word of peace and comfort to us that will change us from one degree of glory to another. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas. As you all well know, Christmas Day has fallen on the Lord's Day this year. And since Christians throughout the centuries have been celebrating the coming of Christ on this day, I thought it would be appropriate for us to pause from our series in the Gospel of Luke and to preach from Isaiah chapter 42 this morning. This is not a typical Christmas text, but I found it appropriate for us this morning Of course, in our tradition, the incarnation and the resurrection are topics we focus on every Lord's Day. Christmas and Easter comes 52 weeks a year around here. But this morning, I thought this text would aid us in proclaiming what this holiday season is all about. The Christmas season is a joyous time of year. Every city across the country decorates their streets with Christmas-themed decorations. People put
put lights on their houses and ornaments on their trees. Christmas wreaths can be seen on doors and garland strung here and there. Christmas music can be heard 24-7 on radio stations. There are hayrides and caroling that bring holiday cheer. And there's a merry feeling that comes with all the hustle and bustle of rushing to buy gifts. And most of that has nothing to do with what Christmas was intended to be about. But for many people, all of this, together with the true reason for the season, makes this the most joyous holiday of the year. It's probably safe to say that most people love this time of year. But for many, the holiday season, the whole holiday season of Thanksgiving, Christmas, and and New Year's is the worst time of year. Many are more depressed this time of year, and some feel more lonely during the holidays. Perhaps the feeling of of missing a loved one is greater during the holiday season. For whatever reason, some absolutely dread this time of year. And as I look back over this year, I observe that many of us have had a fairly rough year. Some of us lost loved ones this year or knew someone who did. Some were very ill this year and struggled with their health. Others struggled financially or relationally. And so for some of you, this year may have been conceivably a more difficult year than others. And maybe the pressures and anxieties that come with these circumstances seems more heightened and acute during the holiday season. Our text this morning speaks to those who find themselves in circumstances such as these. But this text speaks to all of us. Because even if you do not find yourself in this state, we all face the difficulties that exist in a fallen world. We all experience sin and its consequences. Even more, we were all conceived in sin and found ourselves at enmity with God. But... In light of the suffering that we experience in this fallen world, in light of offending a thrice holy God, God speaks to us in this text to bring us comfort and hope. He does so by telling us about his son. And as we analyze the coming of the Son in this passage, we're going to do so in three sections. They should be printed for you on the back of your bulletin. And those three sections are this. The Son's call to come, verse 1. The manner of His coming, verses 2 through 4. And the reason for His coming, verses 5 through 7. The son's call to come, the manner of his coming, and the reason for his coming. In this text, Isaiah, inspired and born along by the Spirit, 
writes with the eye of prophecy, foretelling of the coming of Jesus Christ. It is, of course, God the Father who is ultimately speaking in this passage as he tells us about the coming of his very own Son. It is very clear that he is a proud Father, eagerly wanting to tell us about his Son. And he specifically calls his Son his servant in this passage. Richard Sibbs in his book, The Bruised Reed, says, Christ was God's servant in the greatest piece of service that ever was. A chosen and a choice servant who did and suffered all by commission from the Father. In this, way, in this we may see the sweet love of God to us in that he counts the work of our salvation by Christ his greatest service and in that he will put his only beloved son to that service. What a support to our faith is this, that God the Father, the party offended by our sins, is so well pleased with the work of redemption. God, the Father, is pleased with no one more than he is with his servant son. He delights in him and had chosen and called him to come and to put him to this service to redeem a people, to redeem you and me. This passage cannot be fully understood and appreciated outside of its fuller context. When we consider the the previous passage, we see just how great the Son is in relation to all things, but especially in relation to false gods and idols. In chapter 41, God contests the claims of the false gods of the nations, and he, he challenges their prophecies. And in verse 23, he says to these false gods, Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. At the end of... Chapter 41, he goes on to oppose all who look to man-made idols. And in verses 28 and 29, he says, But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty. With emphasis... He says to the false gods, behold, you are nothing. With emphasis, he says to idolaters, behold, they are all a delusion. Now contrast these with the behold of the first verse of our passage. Behold, my servant. Whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. 
This contrast shows us why the Father is so pleased with the Son. It shows that there is no hope in the idols of the nations. Hope only comes in God's beloved Son, the servant. He is the hope of the nations. And so God raises up their thoughts to the one who had been chosen and commissioned to come and to bring justice to the earth. God's chosen servant could be trusted to accomplish this because it was God the Father who would uphold him. His mission, in other words, would be a success because his authority And power came from God. The idols were like empty winds. But the servant possessed the very spirit of God to empower him for his coming. And for his mission. And here we see the sweet harmony of the Holy Trinity in bringing forth redemption. The father calls and commissions the son. The Spirit sanctifies and empowers the Son. And the Son executes and accomplishes our redemption. Salvation is a full Trinitarian activity. And we should find comfort that each person of the Godhead is pleased to do his role to bring forth our redemption. The triune God is no more glorified than in his work of salvation. And we see that here when the Father, pleased with the Son, places his Holy Spirit upon him to accomplish the greatest service of all. Now, with respect to that service, we ask, in what manner did the Son come? We see that he was called and empowered to come. But what was the manner of his coming? Well, we might think that the eternal son, the king and creator of all things, who is rich beyond all comparison, might come in all of his majesty and all of his splendor. We might think that his coming would be announced to all the world by mighty angels shining and reflecting the glory of the Lord and proclaiming his coming with loud sounds of thunder. But our text says that the manner of his coming would be one in which he would not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. King of kings did not come in a glamorous spectacle, born in palaces or temples. Instead, he came as a tiny, frail baby, born in a stable and laid in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. He was not announced to the whole world. Instead, angels appeared to lowly shepherds. He did not come in an exalted state. Instead, he came in an estate of humiliation. Furthermore, 
He did not come to build a kingdom filled with prominent, noble, and worthy people. He came for a people described in this text as bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks. He came lowly and weak for the lowly and weak. And so we see the foolishness of this king and this kingdom. What king would come in such a lowly estate? Who builds a great kingdom filled with nobodies? But this king is not like the kings of the earth. He is not like Cyrus, king of Persia, who is described in the previous chapter, in chapter 41, verse 25, as, as one who will trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads on clay. The servant king of chapter 42 does not trample on, but defends the weak. This text shows the gentle and humble side of Christ who came not for mighty trees, but for reeds. And not even healthy reeds, but bruised reeds. That is who we are. We are bruised reeds. Richard Sibbs defines a bruised reed as a man that for the most part is in some misery as those were that came to Christ. And by misery he is brought to see sin as the cause of it. This is such a one as our Savior Christ terms poor in spirit in Matthew 5.3, who sees his wants and also sees himself indebted to divine justice. End quote. See, a bruised reed is one who knows that sin is destroying him and who knows that if it were not for God's grace and mercy, he would snap like a twig, like a bruised reed under the forceful wind of sin and Satan. And so he is drawn to the Savior. We are bruised reeds. Suffering the effects of sin. But beloved, you can take comfort and strength in knowing that the servant king did not come to break us. He came to heal us and make us whole. But he does so by the bruising. He brings certain trials and tribulations upon us. He lays certain crosses on our backs in order to bruise us. Sibs goes on to say that bruising is required before conversion so that the spirit may make way for himself into the heart by leveling all proud high thoughts and that we may understand ourselves to be in what we are by nature. He goes on to say, after conversion, we need bruising so that reeds may know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. Even reeds need bruising by reason of the remainder of pride in our nature and to let us see that we live by mercy. End quote. Just as a surgeon cuts 
in order to heal. So the servant king bruises to make us whole. Bruise us, he will, for our own good. But break us, he will not. We also learn that we are like faintly burning wicks. I actually prefer the translation smoking flax. Again, I like Sib's definition. He says, in smoking flax there is but a little light. And that weak, as being unable to flame, and that little mixed with smoke. The observations from this are that in God's children, especially in their first conversion, there is but a little measure of grace. And that little mixed with much corruption, which as smoke is offensive, but that Christ will not quench. This smoking flax. The servant king did not come to extinguish what was barely aflame, but to tenderly kindle a spark of fire that would one day be fanned into luminous flames that will reflect the glorious splendor of the Lord. Beloved, we are smoking flax. We are filled with much corruption and sin to fight against. But we know that our servant king will not quench us, but is working in us to rid us of all impurities. What a servant that the Father has sent to us. It is no wonder that God the Father delights in Him. For though He was rich beyond all splendor, He became poor. He lowered Himself and became like those whom He came to save, yet without sin. He does not trample over or bludgeon the people of His kingdom. He makes bruised reeds whole. And kindles the smoking flax. Matthew quotes this text in the 12th chapter of his gospel. And he says that this text was fulfilled when Jesus quietly healed all who followed him. He took the bruised and injured and he made them whole again. In verse 16 of Matthew 12 Jesus ordered the people that he had healed not to make known all these healings. You see, he did not exploit these people or their healings to make himself popular. In the words of Isaiah, he did not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard on the street. The miracles he performed were not for self-advertisement. They were meant to demonstrate what he came to do, namely to heal lost sinners, bruised reeds, and to fan the flames of faintly burning wicks. Nothing would stop him from accomplishing his mission. 
Verse 4 of our passage says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. More literally, it says, He will not grow faint or be bruised till he established justice. In other words, though others are bruised, And though others faintly burn, he will not bruise and will not burn low. He would suffer and be burdened by temptation just as we are. But he would not be overtaken or deterred by them. That is, until he established justice in all the earth. And when might that be, I ask you? Where else could it be but the cross? Throughout his mission, he did not grow faint, nor was he bruised. But on the cross, when the weight of our sins were placed upon him, he did indeed grow faint and was bruised. Even more, his flame was quenched and he was broken as the wrath of God was placed upon him. For our sins. Our servant king was a suffering servant who was broken for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. But by his stripes we are healed. And in this way, he has brought forth justice in the earth. Justice is actually the main theme of this passage. Three times it is used. In verse 1, we read that the servant will bring forth justice to the nations. Again, in verse 3, we read that he will faithfully bring forth justice. And then here in verse 4, we read that he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice In the earth. Justice takes on a lot of meaning here in this passage. We can't explore all of it this morning, but we may look around us and see many injustices in the world and begin to think that the servant has failed to fulfill this just yet. We may reflect upon our trials and sufferings and begin to question if Christ has actually accomplished justice in the earth. But we need not look past the cross to find the fulfillment of this verse. When Christ died on the cross, he paid the just penalty for our sins. And in this way, justice can be found where it could not be found before. In former times, God had passed over the sins of his people year after year after year. But Christ's atoning work on the cross justified sinners once and for all time. And not just for the Jews, but for Jew and Gentile alike, bringing justice to all the earth. But his work on the cross only began the process of bringing justice to the earth. The servant 
king is still establishing justice in the world through his church as he is ruling over it by his spirit. And this work will be completed someday when he returns. And then there will be no more bruising. There will be no more smoking flax. Then we will be bright, burning flames, and we will be made fully whole. And so, too, will all the earth be full of justice. Thus far, we have seen the calling of the Son. We have examined the manner of His coming, but what is the reason for His coming? Well, we have already peered into the reason for his coming when discussing the justice that he would establish. However, verses 5 through 7 give more details as to why he came. And as this section begins, the significance of God's message about his servant is heightened by an appeal to God the Creator. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. You see, unlike the false gods in the previous chapter, God, who is the creator and sustainer of the whole creation, is able to keep the promises that he has made in verses 1 through 4. Then when we get to verse 6, there's a shift in the person being addressed. In verses 1 through 4, God, through his servant Isaiah, has been speaking to Israel, or, or more specifically, to the reader. But beginning in verse 6, God begins speaking directly to the servant, to his son. And what we have here is a dialogue between the first and the second persons of the Trinity. The Father is speaking to the Son. You've heard the expression before, what I would give to be a fly on the wall. Well, in this passage, God has given us the opportunity to be a fly on the wall in the heavenly throne room as the Father speaks to the Son of the eternal covenant that they have made with one another. The Father is making promises here to the Son. He says that He will achieve all that He has sent Him to accomplish because He will take Him by the hand and will keep Him. What an encouragement the Son must have received by these promises. Charles Spurgeon said in these verses, Isaiah declares the final perseverance of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is even more encouraging than the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The Lord Jesus perseveres in everything he sets out to do. He will succeed. The father has assured him. And that is the basis of scripture's assurances to us. You see, although God's words in these verses are directed to the Son, they are written 
for our benefit as well. We can be assured that God's promises will come to pass because the promises He made to His very own Son have come to pass. The Father goes on to promise the Son that He will give Him as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. This is amazing. The servant is here identified as our covenant. I don't know if those of you who are, who are members here have ever noticed it before, but in our inquirers class, the first section teaches that Christ is the central figure in all of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, He is the central and preeminent figure. But then when we get to the second portion of the class, I teach that the covenant is the unifying theme of all of Scripture. And when I get to that portion of the class, sometimes I I wonder if people are thinking to themselves, I thought you said that Christ was the unifying or central theme in all of Scripture. Is it Christ or the covenant? And the answer is yes and yes. Christ is our covenant. And this means not only that Christ is the mediator of the covenant, but that he embodies all of the blessings of the covenant. Calvin often demands that if you wish to possess the blessings of Christ, then you must first possess Christ. This means that if you wish to receive the benefits of the covenant, you must first receive and possess the benefactor. Christ does not just give life. He is life. He does not just raise people from the dead. He is the resurrection. He does not just bestow light. He is the light. Christ, who is our covenant, is not only the life, the resurrection, and the light to Israel, but also to the nations. And this is why he came to be our covenant, to be a light, so that the light of the covenant might extend to the nations. Our text tells us this way, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dark dungeon, to bring out of the prison those who sit in darkness. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 12 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The Son came so that we could be sons as well. 
The father was pleased with the son. He delights in the son. And if you are united to the son by spirit wrought faith, then God is pleased and delights in you as well. Though our sins made us enemies with God, if we possess Christ, our covenant, then we receive the forgiveness of sins, the adoption of sons, and justice is established in our relationship with God. Beloved, God has promised the son a bunch of bruised reeds and smoking flax. That is who we are and who Christ came to claim. And so as we reflect upon our sufferings and our problems, let us remember that our bruising is unto holiness and our smoking flax unto glorification. And let us cooperate with God in this work of sanctification. Let us rejoice in knowing that there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. Let us take comfort in knowing that God does not see us as we truly are, but as we will be after the servant son has made us whole. Let us call to mind that Christ is our covenant who came to bring forth justice to the nation. This text called the Israelite to look beyond his own circumstances in exile and to the justice that would be established not only in Israel, but in all the earth. And so too it is calling us to look beyond our own circumstances and our own problems and sufferings and to the glorious gospel light that is going into all the world and how we can be used by him to spread it. You see, all of this is why Christ came. This is what Christmas is all about. So then rejoice that he has come for bruised reeds. To him be all glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Our most holy and gracious God, we thank you for the salvation that you have provided for us in Jesus Christ. That though we have sinned against you and deserve your wrath and deserve hell for eternity, Lord, you have sent your son and he has paid justly for our sins. So that you might be the just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus Christ. May we all focus upon Christ this holiday season. And about what he came to accomplish for us. May we live our lives for him. Just as he is the light of the world. May we reflect his light in all that we do. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen.